0: Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter, with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash Ways. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. And just one more narrative describing the Sicilian adventure. The reader will remember Major T.D.B. Macmillan's exploit with an overloaded horser at Netheravon. Here is the sequel to it. We took off in a more or less orderly manner, though by the time it came to my turn to start, the whole area was so shrouded in a pool of thick yellow dust that it was impossible to see the tug, and it was a pure coincidence that we both happened to be heading in the same direction when we emerged. The first part of the flight went without a hitch, though it soon became obvious that the loose formation called for in the briefing was more loose than formation. I had time to take stock of my load, consisting of a sergeant, ten men of the South Staffords, a medical orderly, a trailer of ammunition and a folding bicycle. My second pilot, a great friend of mine called Bernard Horsell, had not had a lot of experience on Waco's, so we used the hours of daylight left to run through his duties on coming into land. These consisted mainly of calling out the height and airspeed at 10 second intervals. I checked the intercom and found it still to be working and then settled down to await the dark. When it did come we were due for a shock. I called up Captain Smith and asked him to switch on his station keeping lights to which he replied plaintively that they had been on for a quarter of an hour. Obviously there was an electrical failure somewhere. By this time it was inky black and we were over the sea so it behoved us not to get out of position to such an extent that the tow rope might snap. I remembered that sometimes it was easier to see in the darkness if there was no intervening glass window so with the South Stafford's axe I cut away the front panel of my Perspex canopy. The wind was appalling but I was enabled to see slightly more clearly the dim blur which was the American white star on the starboard wing of the Dakota. After what seemed like a lifetime we saw flak, flares and a red glow over on our port bow and Captain Smith said laconically, I guess that's Sicily. We turned in towards the land but the darkness was so great that it was impossible to make out any of the landmarks which hours of studying air photos of the area had led us to believe should be prominent. Captain Smith was equally bewildered so he turned north along the coast heading for what was quite conspicuously a strongly defended area. As we flew steadily along we became the focus of attention of the enemy AA gunners and I remember wondering whether if an AA shell hit us it would go straight through without exploding and then realising that it would be asking rather too much of providence. Our attention was suddenly distracted by the Dakota's electrical system choosing that moment to spring to life and it seemed to us that the enemy gunners could not fail to take advantage of the aerial Christmas tree we had become. I rang up Captain Smith and the lights went out but it left us feeling strangely weak. Just then, another frenzy of enemy AA surrounded us, but apart from frightening us out of our wits, had no effect. Captain Smith called up to say that he had no idea where we were and suggested taking us back to Malta. I protested strongly, so he said that he had guessed that the first lot of flak was from Syracuse and the second lot was from Catania, but to make sure we'd better go and have another look. Without further ado, he turned round and we repeated the performance, but in reverse. Again, we flew through the first and second barrage without being hit, but fearing that Captain Smith's inquisitiveness might prompt him to try a third run, I decided to part company. I had seen a large fire burning down below, so I decided to go and join the other gliders which must be down there, even if I didn't know where it was. I thanked Captain Smith for the ride and released the rope. The rush of the wind died away and we circled to lose height, with Bernard chanting monotonously our height and airspeed. I kept the large fire on my right and headed downwards into the unknown dark. Suddenly some treetops loomed up and I just managed to pull up and avoid them. I pushed the stick forward to gain flying speed and then levelled off for a landing. I remember Bernard saying naught feet 85 miles an hour when we hit something very solid and I passed out. When I came to the glider was at rest, the cockpit was full of dust and the whole of the tubular steel struts in the nose of the glider was snugly wrapped round my waist instead of being in their proper place. Bernard was leaning forward with his head on the splintered wreckage of the instrument panel. I later learned that he had foolishly undone his harness, the better to read the instruments. I shook him and asked him if he was all right. He came too quickly and shook his head to clear it. Yes, I'm okay, but I bet we've got the thickest bloody lip in Sicily. He was silhouetted against the glow of the fire, and from what I could see, I was sure that he was right. I realized that this was no place to linger and as my passengers showed no sign of coming to life, I heaved myself out of the wreckage. It was then that I discovered that all was not well with my left leg, which had no feeling in it at all. However, the other one was all right, so I hopped to the door of the glider and fell out into the arms of Captain Alec Dale. He told me afterwards that his glider had been set alight by incendiaries and had caused the tomato field in which he had landed to blaze merrily. He and his crew were unhurt, so he led them across an open field adjacent, while he was crossing it, he heard the unmistakable whistle of a glider coming in fast and took cover behind a stout tree. As luck would have it, it was the same tree which my glider struck at 85 miles per hour. A considerably shaken Alec waited hopefully for a few minutes for signs of life and then forced himself to go and have a look to see if there was anyone still alive. Imagine his relief when the doorpost opened and I hopped into his arms. My passengers, who had all been concussed, came to and we set off cross-country towards our objective, the bridge at Syracusa. I could not walk so they put me in the bicycle which we had carried and gave me the 19 year old medical orderly to act as by means of propulsion. We travelled at the tail of my little party with Alec Dale leading. Unfortunately every time there was a louder bang than usual my escort dived for the ditch leaving me and my bicycle to carry on as best we could. Inevitably we ran over at least one prostrate soldier each time and collapsed in a heap on another through sheer lack of momentum. The bangs became more and more frequent and the night sky was split by brilliant explosions every few seconds. I eventually got so fed up with my involuntary nosedives that I begged to be left behind in a ditch with a rifle. By this time my damaged foot was beginning to cause me considerable pain and I couldn't really have cared less what happened to me. They refused my very reasonable request so we pushed on. Dawn was just beginning to break when one of our patrols came back with the news that they had located a parachute brigade regimental aid post in an orchard and in this I was finally deposited while the others made their way to the bridge. As the day warmed up more and more wounded were brought in until we had a pretty fair cross section of the airborne division. We lay there all day waiting for the relieving seaborne forces of the 8th army to catch up with us. The only bit of excitement was when a force of Italians, taking it for granted that it was fairly safe for them to attack a place where the Red Cross flag was hanging conspicuously, put in an assault, but were beaten off without further casualties to ourselves. Towards evening the battle around us died and the RAP became more organised. It was then that I had my second meeting with Colonel Jones. A shadow fell across my stretcher and I looked up to see him standing over me. With a twisted grin he said, Oh, so it's you, is it? Now it's your turn to go through the hoop. Then and only then did it occur to me how appropriate was his nickname of Jonah. While the contest for the bridge was taking place my party was also having its adventures. We'd been lying underneath the cliff wondering what to do next when we heard a boat approaching and a naval pinnace appeared. Out of it leapt a number of armed men of the special air service who were following up our attack by a sea landing. By some miraculous chance They had missed the point where they should have landed and hit just where we were, under the rocks. Thankfully we joined in with them and advanced up the cliff. During the night we had various adventures while engaging strong points and pillboxes. I acting as an ordinary trooper and by dawn we had captured some 100 to 150 prisoners. The Italians in Sicily had all manner of queer ways of fighting, some of which had to be dealt with quite ruthlessly, as the following incident illustrates. I was acting as an escort for some prisoners and was dressed in my sea-soaked battle dress with an Italian tope on my head and armed with a British rifle. Winding down a narrow lane, the guards out in front of the column and a dozen or so of us on either side of it, we were brought to an abrupt halt by the crack of a rifle, one of the guards in front falling mortally wounded. Momentarily we were stunned, then, seemingly without reason, one of the SAS guards in front of me, whose head had been half turned towards the prisoners, turned right round and pushed his way into the column. Without a word, he stopped in front of one of the men, lifted his rifle by the barrel, and without warning, swung it up and brought it down with a crack on the man's head. The Italian sank to the ground without uttering a sound. His skull crushed in. Why on earth did you do that? I asked incredulously. Didn't you see the bastard? he replied. No, I answered. Why? Well, he continued, wiping the butt of his rifle. He was up that tree. He shot my chum in the back and then dropped into the column. I happened to turn round just as he dropped. The column proceeded until finally we came to a small farm, where we put all the prisoners in a pigsty, in which they crouched in terror, while we climbed on the sty's flat roof to observe the firing which was coming towards us. The dawn had broken, and it was a beautiful morning, already blazing hot. I shall never forget the sight that met our eyes as we turned towards the sea. The farm was not far from the sea, and there, between Cap Passaro and Cap Muro di Poco, was the greatest fleet yet to be assembled in the world. It was a fantastic sight, ship upon ship of every kind, a thousand of them, and I was spellbound despite the shelling. I remembered having talked to a naval captain in Algiers some weeks before and his telling me of the enormous fleet that had had to sail unnoticed from London and Alexandria to rendezvous in the middle of the Mediterranean and then on a common course to converge on Sicily. And here I was looking at it, the result of years of work and planning. It was then that shells began to fall all around us both from an Italian battery inland and from allied ships at sea. We noticed a British destroyer tearing up and down the anchored convoy ranging on the farmhouse where we were and frantically we signaled to it with an Aldis lamp. After a nerve-wracking 10 minutes we succeeded in getting the firing diverted onto the Italian batteries and thus had the satisfaction of being relieved of both pests at once. The special air service in which I was temporarily enlisted was led by an incredible and romantic character named Paddy Maine. I only saw him once and that was when we were moving into the island and came upon a group of very senior looking officers, Italian judging by the magnificence of their uniforms. Maine was going forward to accept their surrender when there was a shot which seemed to come from the back of the group of officers. Without hesitation Maine. Drew his revolver, pushed an officer violently aside, and fired at someone in the rear rank. An officer fell. There was no more trouble, but it left no one in doubt as to the character of Paddy Main, why he was what he was, and why he had done what he had done. As the day drew on, I found gliders everywhere, many in the fantastic positions where they had crashed in the night. I remember one which had obviously hit the top of a tree and tipped up, the load, a jeep, remaining in the glider, the cockpit having pitched forward to the ground. The amazing thing was that the dead driver of the jeep was still in his seat at the wheel. He had been killed outright. Later I found another glider carrying a six-pounder anti-tank gun. This time the gun had burst through into the cockpit, crushing the pilot who was dead underneath. Another I discovered fixed in the side of a cliff. Obviously the pilots must have been killed on impact, but the load of troops had survived. Everywhere there were remarkable examples of what the glider could put up with, if given a reasonable chance. During my wanderings I went in search of food, for we had had nothing to eat for a day and a night. I gathered four tough chaps round me and we sorted down the road. Suddenly an Italian jumped out of the hedge and we all crouched, Tommy guns at the ready. To our surprise he threw down his rifle and with his hand in the air shouted, All right, all right, don't be fright. I don't know which of us was the more surprised, but it was little incidents like this that kept up one's morale. Later the next day we came to the bridge, the Ponte Grande where we found the aftermath of the battle. Galpin's glider was still in the field, a memorial to an epic piece of glider piloting and the pattern of so much that was to come. On the other side of the canal, I could see the tail of Captain Denham's glider. I crossed over and the sight which met my eyes was indeed terrible. The glider had hit the bank and the effects of the explosion inside the glider could clearly be seen. The crew and passengers had been blown forward as if down a funnel, but of the pilot there was no sign. As I stood looking at this macabre and tragic pile of bodies, I thought back to the gay Denham. I remembered that as I was briefing the pilots, he had appeared at the door. His beret was at a jaunty angle and his long fair hair showed beneath. He had just arrived after having been towed 1,500 miles across the sea and desert in one of the horse gliders. As he leaned on the door, he said in his typical drawl, I say, I've come to see a man about an operation. He had shown that nonchalance, which is of such immense value in the British officer, which sometimes startles but brings with it calm confidence. Although he had been asked to carry out an almost impossible task, his death was not in vain, but I walked back to the bridge deeply affected and somewhat overwhelmed. I arrived at the bridge almost at the same time as a jeep, in which was the divisional commander as dapper as ever, despite the fact that his glider had been landed in the sea. ''Ah, George!'' he shouted. ''There you are. I've been looking for you everywhere. Come on, get in. I want to have a talk with you.'' I climbed in, feeling very weary, and wondering what was going to happen next. There was much to talk about, and as we drove into Syracusa, we found the British Army everywhere. After leaving the General, I found Colonel Jonah Jones, second in command of the Air Landing Brigade. He had landed successfully and carried out a meritorious action. His glider had been filled with the staff and clerks of the brigade headquarters. They had landed close by a strongly defended shore battery of five field guns, surrounded by barbed wire and ditches. Realising that to attempt to attack the battery by night would be an impossibility, Colonel Jones and his party lay up in a nearby farm. The following morning, however, the little party of glider pilots, staff officers and clerks attacked the position so vigorously that by 11.15am it was captured. Jones subsequently was to receive the DSO for his courageous action. But he was also, apart from being brave... A very amusing man, always with an eye for the girls. I say, George, he said on meeting me, I've got an invitation to lunch. Don't be silly, I answered. What do you mean? Well, he replied, smiling. After I captured the guns, I saw a villa, so I decided to capture that too. Lo and behold, there emerged from the door a lovely American girl. Her husband was in the cellar, but he was an Italian and didn't like the sound of the battle raging round the villa. She was tickled that we were British, and I got on with her so well that she asked me to lunch today. I said I would come as soon as I'd finished fighting and I also asked if I could bring a friend. I thought you would like to come too. Will you? Okay I'd I'd love to I answered but what about transport? Well said Jonah all I could find was the Syracuse fire engine. I looked at him incredulously. Leading me to a shed he showed me a real live fire engine of about 1900 vintage brass fittings and all and attached to the rear was a six pounder anti-tank gun. Collecting several men, we all climbed on the fire engine, armed to the teeth and sped down the lanes to lunch with an American lady. It was an amazing sight and when we roared into the courtyard, the owner and his entourage set up a cheer. With sentries at strategic points, we then proceeded to a wonderful lunch while all around us were the sounds of the diminishing battle, the rattle of machine guns and explosions. I don't know how many bottles of Chianti we drank that afternoon or how much spaghetti we ate, but it was a large and very, very good lunch. 48 hours after the main landings on the beaches a second airborne landing was made in the area of Catania. Catania is a town or port situated on a coastal plain backed by a range of mountains the greatest of these being Mount Etna. To reach it from Syracusa it is necessary to cross some hills and then to come down onto the plain via a road. A river the Sorrento flows through this plain and at one point is the Primasole Bridge which carries the road from Syracusa across the river and then continues northwards. In order that the 8th Army should be able to race unimpeded to the north of the island, it had been deemed essential that the Primasole Bridge should be captured. And with that in view, the 1st Parachute Brigade, under the command of Brigadier Gerald Lathbury, was instructed to drop on three zones in the vicinity of the Primasole Bridge and to carry out the following plan. Three parachute battalions were to drop west of the bridge near the river and one near the Gornalunga Canal. Two platoons of parachutists were to capture the bridge by coup de main while others were engaged on other tasks such as eliminating anti-aircraft batteries. Having taken the bridge it was to be held in depth, the 1st Parachute Battalion organising the defence of the bridge itself while the 2nd Battalion held the high ground south of the bridge. In support of this attack were units of the airborne anti-tank Royal Artillery. The whole force was to be carried in 105 Dakotas The glider force consisting of eight Waco gliders and 11 horses, towed by Halifaxes and Albemiles of the Royal Air Force. The raid took off from the strips in North Africa and headed for Sicily in the dropping zones 500-odd miles distant. But as the armada of over 100 aircraft came upon Cap Poco, misfortune overtook them and nearly wrecked the expedition. Anti-aircraft fire opened up on the air fleet, considerable damage was done and a number of aircraft shot down. I heard a rumour that the Germans had obtained the call sign of the day from aircraft to ships and had, shortly before approach of the Armada, given the sign and had bombed the British fleet. Shortly after, the British airborne forces arrived and gave the same signal, only to be greeted by murderous fire. Whatever the cause, disorder and confusion reigned everywhere and the main strength of the force was dispersed. However, a number of aircraft found the targets and parachutists and gliders were landed in the area soon after 10pm on the 13th of July the battle continuing until the 14th. During this time in the dark officers and men searched for each other and having gathered sufficient numbers they had to find their way to the bridge. By 2.15am a defensive position had been established around the bridge. One extraordinary and confusing factor was that both German and British parachutists were dropped in the same zones and became mixed up in the darkness. To say there was no confusion in the British force would be an exaggeration. The unfortunate incident of the fleet had thrown everything into turmoil in the air and still greater confusion prevailed on the ground so that Brigadier Lathbury, the brigade commander, had great difficulty in centralising his force. Staff Sergeant White, one of the glider pilots, reported that the enemy's ACAC fire with flaming tracer shells and bullets was so bright that it lit up the landing zones. It is astonishing to think that many of the pilots who landed under these conditions, being shot at by all and everything and trying to land into the darkness had had no training at all in England and that for some of them this was their first experience of night landing since they had been flying gliders. The ironical point is that the RAF considered it too dangerous to land without flare paths when training at home. It was here that Major Alastair Cooper, AFC, met his death when he was carrying the regimental commander in his headquarters. Apparently the tug aircraft was hit by akak and exploded and in the pitch darkness Alastair Cooper tried to land his heavily loaded aircraft in a riverbed. They were only at 500 feet when the tug blew up, so he had little or no time to make up his mind when and how to land, and he and all his passengers were killed. His loss was my own, for I've never had an officer who showed such complete loyalty and self-sacrifice. He gave up rank and flying training so that the regiment might be shaped efficiently. He saw others pass on to coveted courses at the RAF training schools and come back and receive promotion over his head. Many of these were territorials, whereas he was a regular officer. He never complained, and he continued to show the same spirit throughout, even to sacrificing his life, for Alastair Cooper was fully aware of the limitations of his flying experience and that he had had no training whatsoever for landing under the conditions forced upon him. But he never faltered. In the action of the defence of the Primusole Bridge, the first glimpses of the total soldier were to appear. Anti-tank guns were served and operated by Sergeants Anderson, Atkinson and Doig, glider pilots, and they fought with these guns after being shown how to operate them when they were actually on the bridge. In another instance, glider pilots insisted on making use of a captured 88mm German gun. The following is the story of one of the glider pilots who took part in this assault. Just before approaching Malta we passed over elements of our fleet and I must confess to a few anxious moments. I knew that should the Albemarle, our tug, fail to give the correct signal we would soon be doing our best to carry out forced landing procedure on Malta. But thanks once again to the tug crew all we received from the Royal Navy was bon voyage. At last we were ready for the run into the landing zone. We climbed to a thousand feet and began the run in losing height again until we were at 500 feet. We had been told at the briefing that a pathfinder force of the 21st Independent Parachute Company would have dropped flares to lay out a skeleton flare path for us, but the lights on the landing zones were much too brilliant for flares. They included several searchlights and the odd machine gun, with light-ack-ack for good measure. By this time, we were over the area and could see numerous fires which seemed to have been placed at uniform intervals. Having seen photographs of our particular landing zone, which showed the field to be corn or hay, and as our intelligence had assured us that the only opposition we were likely to encounter would be the local home guard, we were perhaps just a little doubtful whether we were in the right area, or even in the right country. The air around us was getting quite warm. One burst of small arms fire had passed between the cockpit and the passengers, and, as we later discovered, made rather a mess of the undercarriage and fuselage, and the left front wheel of the jeep. We were now circling the area, and did so twice before the tug crew, who had played their part wonderfully, said that we must depart down to the ground. We realised now that we really were over the target. We released and dived to avoid the small arms fire. The enemy must have thought that we were finished because the fire suddenly ceased, so we attempted to carry out a landing between the fires still blazing in a building in the fields. All went well for a time. We could see that the fires had been started by haystacks, set alight by ack-ack fire. Unfortunately one stack had not been set on fire, so we didn't see it until we hit it with the port mainplane. In the end, this turned out to be an advantage as it had afforded perfect cover from the fire of the enemy and gave us time to unload the glider and move for cover. The only casualty was some of the equipment of the cameraman, a sergeant of the film and photographic unit. He lost a camera lens and went about crawling on hands and knees trying to locate it, but without any luck. At last, everyone was safely in the jeep and we decided to put as many miles as we could between us and the haystack before dawn. After several miles, the only contact we had made was a paratrooper, who appeared to be the only survivor of his stick. At dawn, we arrived at what seemed to be a deserted farmhouse, still in complete ignorance of what had happened to the artillery units we were supposed to join. We decided to put the jeep into a barn and wait for full daylight. About an hour later, we were favoured with machine gun fire from the river, but not wishing to give ourselves away, we made no reply. This appeared to satisfy the opposition, who withdrew. Knowing that our troops were to the south, we decided to try to get through to them, The only way across the river was by a narrow bridge, about a mile along the bank, guarded by a single sentry. We were prevented from reaching the bridge, however, by concentrated small-arms fire from the south bank of the river and had to take cover in the riverbed, returning their fire. Very soon, we suffered our first casualty, the Royal Artillery Gunner, who was fatally wounded, and within a short time we were surrounded and made prisoners. Our captors turned out not to be Italian Home Guard units, but German paratroopers, who had been dropped the previous day to await our arrival. Later that day, we were forced to march with the retreating German forces, and at one stage I began to doubt whether the Germans intended to continue to be burdened with us. We were herded together into a small hole, the sentries fingering grenades with obvious intentions, but something or someone must have made them change their minds. The next day, we were constantly shelled by our own artillery and strafed by the American Air Force, which was responsible for several casualties, one of them being my co-pilot... Staff Sergeant Montague, who was fatally wounded. The following morning saw us on our way across the Straits of Messina to Italy, this time to be bombed by flying fortresses. About nine days later, we reached Stalag 7A, a prison of war camp near Munich. It was in this and similar camps that I spent the remainder of the war until liberated by the Russians in May 1945. The operation against the Primisoli Bridge was successful, but the margin between success and failure was small. Fewer than one-fifth of the brigade were dropped at the right place and at the right time. The remainder were scattered over a wide area for reasons already given. To these must be added the loss of 11 aircraft shot down and the return to base, for one cause or another, of 27 without dropping their parachutists. Thus, the numbers of those available to capture the objective and then to repel counter-attacks was very small. And so... The first airborne operation in which gliders were used came to a successful, if costly, end, and it taught us many lessons. One of the most important features, so far as I am concerned, was that the men of the glider pilot regiment had proved themselves to be the men I had wanted them to be. Despite the fact that they were pilots first, they had shown remarkable adaptability, courage and self-discipline in the battle. Here is the epic story of Staff Sergeant T.N. Moore, military medal, to prove my point. About 6pm on July 9th, 1943, Ivan Garrett and I took off in our Waco glider, number 47, from Tunisia bound for Sicily. We carried a load of 12 infantrymen, four handcarts of ammunition, and a Bangalore torpedo. It was Ivan's 29th birthday. Shortly after takeoff, a perspex panel in the front of the cockpit blew out. The intake of cold air caused great discomfort to the troops, and the noise made it extremely difficult to maintain telephonic communication with the towing Dakota. After passing over Malta, gliders numbered 47 and 48, the latter flown by Lieutenant Whittington Steiner, became detached from the mainstream and it was some 40 minutes after our estimated time of arrival that we reached the Sicilian coast. We were near Augusta and well to the north of the intended landing zone and we could see the glow from Mount Etna to the northwest. We turned south and flew down the coast towards the landing zone near Syracuse and were caught in a searchlight beam. Our tug pilot dived and we followed him down almost to sea level. As we levelled out I caught a glimpse of Whittington Steiner still in the beam at about 2,000 feet. It was the last we saw or heard of him. We cast off at about 2,300 feet, a mile and a half from the coast but in the teeth of a 40 mile per hour offshore gale made little headway. The beam caught us again but we had no choice in view of our limited height and poor ground speed but to fly down it. We crossed the coast at an indicated height of about 300 feet but in the absence of the moonlight which the meteorological experts had promised the actual crossing was scarcely discernible. The ground came up at an alarming angle and I made a heavy landing. By daylight next day we saw we had landed on a boulder strewn slope about 30 yards from an Italian pillbox. The wheels were smashed on landing and the glider came to an abrupt halt as the nose hit a large rock. This penetrated the nose of the machine, broke my ankle and pinned my legs under the cockpit seat. Garrett was unhurt and he kicked his way through the side of the cockpit. Within a few seconds of landing, the fabric top of the fuselage was in flames. Later, we discovered that the fire was caused by grenades thrown by the Italians in the pillbox. Flaming patches of fabric fell into the handcarts of ammunition in the centre of the glider and before all the troops could escape, there was a series of explosions caused by ignition of phosphorus grenades and mortar bombs. Six of the airborne infantry managed to get out but the remainder perished. Those who did escape took cover among the rocks and shrubs but the explosions were so violent that one man was killed well over 100 yards away. I saw Garrett help one injured man from the burning machine and then stumble. A piece of flying grenade or bomb struck his left arm and tore away practically the whole of the elbow joint. Meanwhile I was unable to move and the cushion on my seat was beginning to burn. Garrett struggled to the nose of the glider and with his right arm lifted it a little. I knew this was my only chance. As he lifted, I threw myself forward and wrenched my leg free. As I did so, I felt the bone in my leg break. Once free, Garrett and I tried, but without success, to pull another man from the wreckage. He was unconscious and already burnt. We scrambled about 30 yards away and took cover in the rocks as protection from the explosions. They continued for about two hours until one particularly violent one scattered the blazing skeleton of the glider far and wide. We thought this final explosion... Was due to the ignition of the Bangalore torpedo. Later, we learned that the fire had acted as a landmark for many of our unfortunate comrades who were down in the sea. During the night, Garrett lost a lot of blood. He was given a transfusion of seven pints when he reached hospital in Tripoli, and he suffered from the intense cold. I used a putty as a tourniquet to control the bleeding, but by morning his forearm was completely black, and it was evident that even if we were rescued quickly, he would lose his arm. As the sun got up, our hopes rose for as the seam is cleared we could see the invasion fleet mast to mast along the horizon about three miles away. Presently infantry landing barges began nosing into Avala about five miles away to the south and we hoped our position would soon be overrun by the invading forces. The immediate area around us and the coastal strip to Avala were held by Italian troops and dominated by fire from a large tower which appeared to be in the direction of the landing zone Soon after dawn German fighter aircraft began strafing the beaches and landing craft around Avala. About 7am we were pleased to see a fellow glider pilot and an American who had managed to swim ashore from their glider which had been forced down in the sea. They approached us from the beach and inquired as to the direction of the landing zone but in view of our information about the enemy positions they decided to proceed along the coast to Avala where they hoped to obtain help for us. Shortly after their visit we heard a cry from some 50 yards away and saw someone propelling himself towards us on his back by the use of his elbows. After what seemed an age, he reached us, and we recognised him to be the corporal from our glider. He had been struck between the knees by an exploding grenade. I ripped the legs off his trousers and tried to dress his wounds, but it was almost hopeless, for the hole in each knee was larger than a field dressing. Meanwhile, Garrett grew weaker, and by noon I had given up hope of aid from avala reaching us. I decided that, to avoid his having to spend another night in the open, I must reach either the landing base at Avala or the shipping. I dragged myself towards the wreck of our Waco and came across a dead Italian. He was undoubtedly one of the party who had previously occupied the pillbox and who had thrown grenades at the glider. He still had a grenade cap in his hand and had been wounded in the head, no doubt by the explosions. I took his carbine and bayonet and found that together they would serve as a crutch and on this contraption I was able to make my way to the beach. I found great difficulty in crossing two wire apron fences, but fortunately I was quite unaware at the time that they marked the limits of a minefield. On reaching the beach I lay there for some time half-submerged in the sea. In this attitude I dozed for a time, and when I awoke found a large fish nosing around my legs. It had no doubt been attracted by the blood oozing from my trousers into the water. I thought of tickling trout in the Cumbrian hills, but without the finesse such as I had been taught there I scooped it out of the sea onto the bank. I ate it raw with great gusto. I swallowed two Benzedrine tablets and set out to swim to the shipping. When about a quarter of a mile out, I saw the corporal had reached the first apron fence and procured himself a couple of wooden staves used by the Italians in place of our iron ones for building barbed wire fences. He began to hobble along in a southerly direction towards Avila. Although he had agreed to remain with Garrett, he had for some reason decided to seek help on his own. I could see a farmhouse about three quarters of a mile ahead of the corporal and near the beach, and I decided to swim along the beach and contact him at the farmhouse. I scrambled ashore near the farm and hauled myself towards it along a wire fence. I noticed imprints of both English and Italian stud markings in the dust, and hoped that our own troops might be occupying the farm. It proved to be completely deserted, however, and everything was in a state of disorder. It was evident that they had been fighting there early in the day. The corporal followed slowly and was obviously in great pain as he pushed himself along with his sticks. By the time he reached the farm it was quite dark. Whilst waiting for him I was surprised by an Italian patrol advancing through the tomato patch at the side of the farm. When they entered the courtyard of the farm I hid under a pile of beans in the kitchen but no one came inside and after a few minutes they left dragging a machine gun and wheels after them. When the corporal hobbled in he was obviously at the end of his strength he lay down in front of a smouldering charcoal fire built on a sheet of metal resting on a few bricks in the centre of the room and proceeded to fortify himself with the only food we could find. An enormous piece of cheese. We discussed means of getting Garrett cover. The corporal had found a path which led quite near the glider and we made plans to use a couple of donkeys from the stable. I had made myself a splint for my injured leg and found that with a stick I could get along. We decided to take some bedding from the farm to keep Garrett warm in case it was not possible to move him. All these plans, however, were upset by an action of the corporal. He wanted some water from the well in the courtyard, and on his way out poked the smouldering charcoal fire. It immediately burst into flame, and the glow must have been plainly visible for quite a distance, for the door was open and the shutters had not been placed over the windows. With the Italian patrol in mind, I cursed him for his folly, but he took little heed and continued on into the courtyard. In a few moments I heard voices. I realised we have visitors who were speaking in a foreign tongue which I didn't recognise, so once again I hid under the friendly pile of beans. I heard the sound of approaching footsteps and someone stood in the doorway, silhouetted against the evening sky. For a few anxious moments there was silence and then I realised that the visitor was wearing a British steel helmet. Help from Avila had arrived at last. A medical officer and a stretcher party from an Indian division, having spent all day searching for us, had given up and were returning to Avila when they were attracted by the light at the farm. They found Garrett and brought him in an hour later. He was conscious but suffering from gangrene, loss of blood and exposure. The Indians sent for additional stretcher bearers and we were carried to Avila. On the journey to the field dressing station in Avila, we saw the farm where we had taken refuge completely destroyed by naval gunfire. Later... We were evacuated to Tripoli, and the three of us spent four months in hospital there. Garrett lost his arm, and the corporal found he would never bend his knees again. Garrett, by his bravery and self-sacrifice, had undoubtedly saved my life. As time passes, I realise more than ever what this sacrifice on his 29th birthday really cost him, but like to feel that in some way my actions on that day helped in his own rescue. Today I am proud to write that there were such men as Ivan Garrett, and that I served with them. Many similar stories were told by the men who returned, but the main theme of them all was courage and self discipline. Nevertheless, I was deeply distressed and worried, for I and I alone had any real comprehension of just what they had done, and done with less than the minimum of necessary practice and training. When we returned to the shores of North Africa, I was met by a staff officer and told, On no account will you allow any of your officers and men to get into any argument with the Americans about this operation. I was given no reason. But I was under no illusions, for there were many reasons why the subject of our allies was very hot and controversial. There were many unpleasant rumours in the air that they let us cast off too early, but I tried not to listen to them, for recrimination seemed useless. I even had trouble among my own officers, some of whom wished to make me the scapegoat for the fact that so many gliders had landed in the sea. In fact, such an ugly situation arose that two officers had to be dealt with. Even today, one senior officer, who incidentally took no part in the training or the operation, Is a severe critic of mine. I was under no illusions concerning the main reason for the near disaster. Whatever mistakes I may have made, and no doubt I did make many, what I could not help was the limited training and therefore the limitations of the glider pilots. As I lay in my tent, I meditated on all that had come to pass, and I was determined that I would get to the highest authority and put my point of view. By good fortune, Just at this time I was informed that the glider pilot regiment was temporarily to come under the command of the United States Air Force and I realised that my opportunity had come. But what I must do was get the right people to hear what I had to say about the state of the regiment. I wondered. Then I remembered that buried in the sand was a bottle of Johnny Walker whiskey, my monthly ration. I dug it up and decided to go down to the tent of the local US Air Force commander, Colonel Dunn. It was about seven in the evening, and he too was lying on his bed. Good evening, sir, I said politely. Oh, hello, Colonel. Come on in, answered Colonel Dunn. Thank you, sir. Look, I've got a bottle of whiskey here. I thought you might like a drink. You bet I would, he cried, and jumped off his bed. Come on, here are two mugs and some water. I entered the tent, and we both sat down at the table, and I poured out the whisky. We talked of this and that, and inevitably of the recent operations in Sicily. Gradually, the bottle emptied, and I said, Colonel may I tell you what I feel? Okay, he answered. Go ahead. Well, sir, I continued, I'm sure that a great deal of the trouble on this operation was due to the fact that those in charge had no idea what we were being asked to do. Well, so what? He said rather unsteadily. I feel that before further mistakes are made through sheer ignorance and lack of training, the top people should be made aware of what happened. How do you think that can be done? He asked. Well, sir, I think that if you would send me to England, I could do it. Okay, boy, you can go. I'll fix it. I think it's a good idea. There's one thing, sir, I said. Yeah? If I go, could you get me the backing of a very high general? I've had too much experience of trying to do it without any real power behind me. Who do you want, then? he said. I took a deep breath and said, General Eisenhower, sir. Is it possible? Boy, you shall have Ike himself. We went on drinking and talking. And I cannot remember what happened next, but I know we parted. Very good friends. Thank you for listening to my reading of Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. I hope you enjoyed it. If this has piqued your interest, there are six other audiobooks available to independent company members on our Patreon site, including The Ship by C.S. Forrester and Tank by Ken Tout. It's £5 a month, and on top of audiobooks read by me, you get unlimited access to exclusive content weekly live streams and early access to merchandise and other deals to join all you need to do is search patreon.com slash we have ways i'll be back tomorrow with the next episode of george chatterton's wings of pegasus